you've reached the Conservative Hippie Podcast, a common sense look at life, the universe, and everything. Here's your host, Jay Frat, the Conservative Hippie. Oh man, I am uh, I am pleased. It's taken me a long time to get this gentleman in a room. Uh, he's still guarded. I, I have no cell phone number. We've uh, communicated only via DM on Twitter, uh, but I have. What I've considered, and I've said in public, the most intelligent legislator um, in the House of Representatives for Washington State Republican Party, um, and uh, it's an easy comparison, but I would say between both parties, um, I've got Representative Jim Walsh. Uh, what What is your district that you represent, Jim? Oh, thanks, Jay. Uh, I'm uh, the representative for the 19th legislative district in Washington. That is the far southwest corner of the state, so along the Pacific coast. Uh, I go from Aberdeen, where I live, down to Long Beach Peninsula in Pacific County, the mouth of the Columbia, and then in along the Columbia River uh, uh, to Longview and Kelso. If you're uh, someone who drives around Western Washington a lot, I'm, I'm basically everything that's west of I-5 and south of Grand Mound. So, uh, so from uh, from I-5 out to the Pacific Ocean is my district. Yeah, and I'm uh, I'm very familiar. I spent 11 years in Vancouver, Washington. I spent 11 years in Longview, Washington, um, and 17 years um, in Cowlitz County. Uh, Kalama, Washington was where I was raised, so um, I've always been uh, very familiar with that area. It's a great area of the state, um, especially somebody like you that travels the state. There is a definite difference between the folks that live in the Puget Sound area and the folks that live in southwest Washington. Um, how long have you been a representative? I was elected in 2016, and it was to replace an appointed legislator. So uh, I took office immediately after that election was certified. So uh, I've been in the legislature since December of 2016, uh, going on eight years. When I finish the current term, it'll be eight years. And and we've seen a lot of change in my part of the state in that time. Uh, My... uh, area, my, my district, and the kind of the area around it, too, used to be considered uh, uh, very much a, a Union Democrat stronghold, uh, blue-collar people, hard-working people, real people, um, and they were sort of uh, FDR or JFK Democrats, so Democrats, but not far-left Democrats. I, I remember, uh, to, to prove your example, I, I believe it was Brian Baird was the congressman from Southwest Washington, and he was very um, in that vein that you're speaking about. Yeah, and, and since, and Baird is still around somewhat. He's not in elected politics anymore, but he's, he's still around. And he, uh, after he uh, retired from Congress, he uh, got involved in some of the non, some of the third-party stuff. He was involved in a couple of movements to try to make a third party or a nonpartisan party. Yeah. So that that's the world that uh, that he comes out of, and that's the world of, of my part of the state. Uh, since uh, 2016, Southwest Washington has become redder. It has become more Republican than it used to be. Uh, but what I always say, Jay, is that it's not the people haven't changed. The people are the same. Their values are the same. Their priorities are the same. Uh, what has changed is 
politics in Washington and America has changed around Southwest Washington. Yeah, Southwest Washingtonians are very common sense based people. Right. No, uh, not a lot of ideology, not a lot of rigidness, very open minded, very practical, like you say, very common sense. And, uh, and they see what's happened in, in Washington politics and in U.S. politics, and they have generally drifted to a, a more conservative, more Republican way. But, but, but again, it's the frame that's moved around them. They're what they've always been, you know, ordinary, good people, solid people, family people, working people. And, uh, and politics has changed around them. So that's been interesting to see. Yeah. And before we get to, we're going to talk about some of these um, policies that are being pushed through um, the state house because it does have my, my show is uh, more national than it is local. And this has impact nationally, what we see going on in the Washington state legislature. But I don't see a lot of interviews with you where people um, try to get to know you a little bit better. You're always uh, you're so wonk, uh, wonky, and I mean that in a positive <laughs> sense in terms of your uh, policy understanding. At what age did you come to grips or realize that you were special, that you had an intellect that was different from others, and that you had a talent for understanding public policy within a framework of your own um, political ideology, if you will? Wow, that's a great question. Um, well, I, I'm rather late to politics in my life. I, I've not always been involved in politics. Um, uh, for most of my adult life, I built and, and have run a, a business, a, a publishing business. Now, we're very niche We're very technical. It's a technical publishing company that, that focuses in a couple of really specific areas. Uh, we do a lot of insurance and actuarial and risk management uh, publishing, technical materials for people who work in those fields, uh, training materials for people who work in those fields. So it, it's very, uh, very specific and very technical. So it, I guess it's from doing that that I uh, really learned how law and policy and regulations affect the work that people do, the the focus that companies have, and how they sell products and and develop markets, and uh, and, and so. I spent a lot of my time doing that. My wife and I have raised th five kids, so I, I was focused on my family and the, the business. Um, and uh, didn't, I didn't, I mean, I followed politics and in the course of my work, I had to, to some degree, but I was not involved directly and, and didn't really see myself uh, as a politician or someone inclined to do that. Um, I got... Involved in elective politics, party politics, primarily because my wife got deeply involved. Um, we were both supporters of Ron Paul in his first, well, in his first Republican presidential run. He had 2012? Run, 2012. He had run for pre president earlier as a libertarian. Yes. And uh, we were both very sympathetic to that run too, but we actually got involved in his campaign. It, it was before 2012. It, mm -hmm. it really started in 2010 and, and mostly in 2011. As these things go, the, the campaigns have to start well before yes. the election. Um, so we got involved in that. And, uh, and I thought that 
Congressman Paul, and this is the father, of course, of the current U.S. Senator uh, Rand Paul, uh, I thought Ron Paul was a real voice of reform. Yes. And he had been a congressman, was a congressman, so he knew the system. He wasn't from outside the system and uh, a complete, uh, uh, you know, anti-system guy. He understood Congress. He understood how it worked. He'd been there and uh, ran with a, a real voice and a real platform of what I thought was real reform and and spoke plainly, didn't speak in sound bites sometimes to his detriment, didn't speak in sound bites. And I found that very uh, inspiring and very energizing. Uh, so we got involved that way. Um, then we got involved in the local uh, party politics at the county level and became the uh, state committee man and woman for our county. And then uh, I was elected by the people in the county as the county party chair and ran the county party there, operation, you know, mm -hmm. organization for, gosh, uh, uh, five or six years. Um, and at that time, uh, we, we managed to get a few uh, candidates elected at the local level, at the county commissioner and, and, and some of the city levels uh, pretty successfully. And then in, uh, starting in about 2014, we decided to, working with the counties in the area to really try to get someone elected to the legislature. And my original effort was trying to recruit yeah. local electeds who would run for the legislature. I think this is a common story. I think <laughs> I think I sense what's going on. Right. You, lo you looked around the room, and uh, you were the one. Well, they told me I was the one. I mean, I was known a little bit because I was the county party chair, and I was writing at that time a uh, monthly column for one of the local newspapers, kind of on politics and what was going on in the state. And when I talked to a couple of the county commissioners, they were like, no, Jim, you ought to run for the legislature. And so after like the third person said that, I was like, okay, well, yeah. let's look at what it would take to do this. And at the time, the area had not sent a conservative to Olympia as a legislator in like 70 years. It had been very, very liberal, very... Democrat, and really not so liberal, but very Democrat for yeah. a long time. But there was a feeling that things were changing. And, and again, I emphasize, the people weren't changing, but politics around them were changing. And there was this sense that that was going to take shape somehow yeah. in change. And I basically ran in 2016 on that premise, that we needed government that was smaller and more transparent and more responsive to people and not uh, clubby and not insider. And uh, and we needed people who would just tell the truth about what was happening. Because our part of the state has not been treated well by a lot of the state bureaucratic agencies. And, you know, this is something that people listening to this can take home to wherever they are in this country. Government agencies tend to, you know, they're leviathan. They tend to live by their own rules, operate by their own rules, and they are not responsive to the people whose lives they affect. And in my part of the state, we've traditionally relied a lot on timber, on the timber industry. We've relied a lot on commercial fishing and crabbing and things like that. So we are a, 
you know, a, a resource-dependent economy in our part of the world. Yes, with, with exports. My, uh, my father was the executive director of the Port of Kalama for, uh, boy, 25, 30 years and brought BHP steel mill there, um, PV grain elevator. You know, the, the Columbia River is a uh, tremendous source of uh, economy uh, for the Pacific Northwest and Southwest Washington in particular. It's a commercial freeway with boats on it. Yeah. Uh, it is very much that, and, and we are very commerce-driven and trade-driven. Uh, so, again, this gets back to it. We're, we're, we're practical people. I mean, we're real people. We work real jobs doing real things. And, uh, but, but the bureaucratic agencies, you know, they dance to their own drummers, and they are very inside, and they, they focus on their own conversations and their own priorities, and there, there's a real, you know, conflict. There's yeah. a real loggerheads between people at regulatory agencies who come usually out of more of an academic background yes. and people on the front lines, people in the real world working jobs. And, and it's not all education because some of the frontline workers are as well educated if not better educated than the bureaucrats and that's something the bureaucrats don't like to acknowledge but it's true no, I, th I think what you're saying there is then you've get uh, policy bureaucrats uh, that come from academia they they look to academia for um, their education within policy whereas uh, used to be representatives uh, would seek their information from the people that they represent the people on the ground the people their constituents and there's been a, um, a confluence of events that have happened where that party, um, the our opposition party, has almost become captured by um, uh, the the books and the statistics that they create themselves versus the on the ground information. <laughs> that, that that's exactly right, and that's so. The if you if you read the Constitution, if you read the founding documents of our country and our state. The elected officials are supposed to be the voice of the people at the Capitol. And, and our founders, both for the country and for the state, understood that there's often elites, there's often insider capital big shots who tend to be disconnected from the people. But legislators, particularly, are supposed to be that reminder. They're the voice of the people to come to the Capitol and speak the people's priorities. And what exactly what we have in Olympia, and this is also true about D.C., is too many elected legislators think the reverse. They think their job is to explain the Capitol's priority to the people. Yeah. And I, I have this conversation with colleagues of mine in Olympia at the Capitol, and many of them don't like to hear this. They, they are so invested in this idea that their job is to explain policy and how things need to be done to the little people they represent. And uh, they, it, is, it is genuinely revolutionary to them, the idea that, no, our job is to raise the voice of the people and remind the agencies and the executive branch that the people are, are the boss, yeah. the people are the rulers. And that's not radical. Um, again, before I, I, I would be remiss, um, 
there are so many people that I see throughout my research that are wallflowers, okay? So they're paying attention. They're listening to this podcast. They follow your Twitter feed. They pay attention, but they don't participate. They're not the trolls out there. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention, um, for people that don't know, you spoke about your wife, Jamie, um, that she passed uh, several months ago, very fresh, very recent, in a tragic car accident um, where a, a large truck crossed over uh, the center lane on a small highway um, and, and killing her. Um, I had the great fortune of meeting Jamie um, at one of these uh, Republican dinners, and as um, you might sometimes go through a crowd and shake hands, and you're thinking about the next person or the next thing or the objective you're meeting that night, um, when I shook Jamie's hand, our eyes locked. She saw me. I saw her. There were so many things I learned in that handshake. There was a vibrance. There was a, a realness. Um, you just mentioned uh, that she was like your political partner in many ways, your wife. How have you dealt with that loss? I have not seen a change in you. You're Jim Walsh. You show up. I shake your hand. I hear you talk about policy. You do the people's business. Yeah, you're you're tweeting at midnight. Yet you're at the Capitol around eight a.m., which means you barely got any sleep. How personally are you dealing with that, Jim? Oh, uh, great question. Hard question to answer. Um, I, to some degree, it doesn't feel real yet. Yeah. It feels like she went to go visit her mom and will be back any moment. Um, uh, it was shocking. Uh, Jamie was young. I, she was in her, her 50s and vibrant and healthy and, and was driving uh, down south to see a client. She was an architect, a licensed architect, and was driving down to see a client about a project on a commercial building uh, the guy wanted to build. Just everyday life. It, the last thing I said to her was, have a productive meeting. I I, I could have said something much more romantic <laughs> or meaningful, and the la my last words to her were, have a productive meeting. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just one of those things. It was a, a, it was a, a thunderbolt. I mean, uh, um, every moment is precious. Every day is precious. Um, I mean, I'm so happy I knew her and was with her for a long time. Uh, we met at college, so it's an old story. Uh, yeah. um, we uh, were married for 33 years, and we had five kids together, and they're all good, great people. Um, so there's so much to be thankful for. Um, you know, the sadness comes in kind of waves, uh, as anybody who's dealt with a, a death in their family or someone close to them knows. Uh, you know, all the cliches are true. I mean, some days are great. Some days it really hits you. Uh, there's no particular rhyme or reason to it. It just sort of comes when it comes. Um, you know, I think about her a lot. I play music that she liked a lot. And uh, and I noticed um, in your speech, uh, as if she is just visiting her mom out of town, you do speak of her in the present, um, which I find touching in some ways that she's still on this journey with you. I feel like that. I mean, I, we were together for so long, and from such a young age, I uh, I can still hear her and sort of feel like she's on my shoulder. Um, you know, uh, yeah, 
there's there's really not a lot to say. I mean, we were together for a long time. I'm still kind of figuring out things to do. I mean, uh, we. So of our five kids, three are are grown and uh, and out in the world, living their lives. One is in college, and one is uh, still in high school at home. So the uh, the seventeen year old is still in high school, and I are kind of living a bachelor's life at the house, um, and trying to figure out how to do the dishes and yeah. do the laundry and all the things. <laughs> um, and, and so we're not we're still figuring that part out. Um, so. Uh, uh, so you have to be you have to be strong, uh, particularly for the young one in your family. You have to be strong. Um, do you feel like the poli- you know are there days where you feel like um, the politics and this fight and the people's work um, is taking away or interfering or you know I asked Joe Kent this, whose wife uh, was killed in action, and and he immediately. Uh, he hasn't taken a break since, and I, you know, I asked him when, when, when do you take time um, to reconcile? When do you take time for yourself? And um, I, and I'm sorry to 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 touch on this scab that is so fresh, um, because I I can see I'm similar. It's like you just load yourself up with work. You put one foot in front of the other, and you stay busy. Um, and so you know we can get off of this topic, but it does seem like you have to be strong. Uh, is there a conflict that you face in this process where um, you almost feel guilty going to work and doing the people's work? No, because she uh, she believed in that very much. Um, uh, and our youngest son, who's still at home, uh, in many ways, he's of our five kids. He's the most like her. They they are temperamentally very similar and and personality wise very similar. Uh, so I think he gets it. I mean, he's, he's 17. He's not yeah. 12. I mean, he's, he's old. He's got a car. He's kind of got his life. And, and, uh, we have dinner almost every night together. He and I do. So, and that's something when Jamie was here that we always tried to do. We had, even if we had to eat later, we always tried to eat with the kids uh, all at the table at the house. And so, uh, so the youngest one and I do, he, we, we do that. And, um, so, you know, it's different, but we're keeping some things the same, and um, and and I know that the the work, the the political work, it meant a lot to her, and and he understands that. Yeah. So, you know, I want to make sure he gets launched and sort of goes in a direction he wants to go in his life, and he. He's seventeen. He's still kind of figuring that out. He doesn't know exactly. Can, can how you imagine go. being seventeen now? Uh, when we were kids, it would absolutely be visiting colleges, figuring out where we're going. Um, I'm sure you've had conversations with him. My sixteen-year-old is already talking about a gap year. Yeah. Of course, in modern times, uh, you know, you almost might get a better education at YouTube University and putting together your own curriculum, um, or visiting a technical school versus going off to what you and I would consider when we were young, uh, a mandatory, a uh, 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 coming of age. You you go off to your liberal arts college and you and you and you have that time to um, study the world more in depth. Um, what I, thank you for touching on those topics. Sure, I know sure. that the wallflowers out there uh, wanted to, they'd be curious about these things, and so thank you. Let's get to where you were talking about about how the politics have changed but the people haven't. 
And um, I want to introduce the conversation into two things that I've noticed. Um, I've done a podcast on an FBI memo that went out where they were talking about symbolism to watch out for, for what they called militia violent extremists. And it was a strange mem- memo in the fact that it used very common symbology to what I would consider uh, political theory or sentiments. For example, the uh, Gadsden flag that all my life I've seen, and I always associated it with uh, people who were Marines or former Marines. Um, then this year, uh, the Democrat Party in Washington state proposed legislation, um, I believe it was HB 1333. It really peaked up on myself because um, they, I would be in line for what this bill uh, was attacking. And it was attacking basically wrong think. It was attacking oppositional party philosophy in the fact that they would create a commission for who they deemed to be um, domestic extremists. They, and, they used the term domestic violent extremists, similar to the militia violent extremist yes. that you mentioned in the FBI memo. Not domestic violence, domestic violent extremism that was their buzzword and it's and it's it it would be their parameters that they would set forth to find these people and they would create a commission a commission that could place people in what what essentially would be re-education camps they they would force them into re-education camps and i thought this when i saw this bill i thought wow this is too far and it went through committee, and then it got held up. And somebody recently told me when we were protesting another bill on the House steps using our uh, our God-given right that's protected by the Constitution to show up, protest, use our voice, that, oh, uh, they put that bill aside, they're going to bring it back next year. Like, nobody realizes the inflammatory, unconstitutional, wrong-headed uh, uh, basis of these laws, they just keep pushing them as if they have the broad population on their side, which we know they don't as common sense people, and we know Washingtonians are common sense. And what I've seen looking at it, you've got several bills that you're going to educate me, educate the people on, but it's almost like they produce these bills one year, and it goes into this Jenga tower of bills that they stack on top of each other. And this year, there were several bills that kind of stacked on top of each other that almost create this uh, panopticon of control, uh, bureaucratic control that they're setting up that we will never be able to get away from that basically puts the state in charge of people. People's lives. Please tell tell us what are these bills this year that they've introduced? And I want people nationally, real quick, to understand this may be Washington politics, but but we are seeing in our petri dish of a republic with all the states, Washington is this petri dish for the Democratic Party to throw out some of their most aggressive, and I would use the term extreme policies. Um, to test within this petri dish of our republic. It, so if you think this is in Washington, and that's it, and you can ignore it, it might be coming to a state near you. Uh, absolutely. You were right. House Bill 1333 in Olympia was uh, everything that you said. It was drafted, it was written by the uh, state attorney general, uh, 
who is a very controversial figure here in Washington State. Who's expected to run for governor when Jay Inslee uh, decides that he'll give up his throne. <laughs> That's right. The, the, the state attorney general has... Uh, his ambitions he wears on his sleeve. It is in the open how uh, how much he covets the governor's uh, chair. Uh, uh, it was, and our state attorney general has a very high opinion of him, himself uh, as an attorney and as a strategist. He likes to brag that he is a highly ranked chess player, which. Uh, is interesting. We're talking about Bob Ferguson, just to say the name. Correct. Um, and uh, but despite all these airs of uh, kind of strategic brilliance, his work product is not brilliant at all. Uh, in our state, as in most states, as in D.C., uh, bureaucrats can put forward legislation. Now they can't file a bill; only a legislator can do that. But they can put forward legislation. Uh, that they write, that they draft, that they structure, uh, and then they uh, do what is called an agency request bill. There's a process by which the bureaucratic agency or its elected head can uh, submit a bill. Uh, they they find a legislator who's amiable to it, and the le- the bill is filed in the name of the legislator, but it is it, it is labeled as an agency request legislation. And uh, that can mean many things, but in the case of our state attorney general, uh, his assistant attorney generals literally write the bill. They write the legislation. And their product, their work product, is surprisingly slapdash for genius strategists and chess masters. Uh, this was the case of House Bill 1333. It would have, as, as you described, created a new state commission that would have been made up, uh, a majority of whom would have been selected by the state attorney general uh, and then some others by the governor and some others by a few others, but clearly a stacked deck yes. uh, of appointees. And they would have determined uh, this what constituted this domestic violent extremism. And when they defined that, they would also define disinformation. Yes. An interesting word, a word originally embraced by Joseph Stalin in the Soviet Union, a word whose history and provenance, if I were the state attorney general, I would steer clear of because I don't think uh, if he were really that brilliant a strategist, he would want the comparisons to those who first used the word disinformation, but nevertheless, there he goes. Um, and uh, and then they would take action. Uh, they would allow. They would recommend. The commission would recommend statute, so new bills, other bills that would allow the state attorney general to prosecute criminally or in or civilly those who exhibited, manifested domestic violent extremism or uh, dabbled and, ex- you know, exchanged and promoted disinformation. And we, and we have clear examples uh, just in the last couple of years um, where uh, I was against um, Board of Health uh, requiring my children um, to become vaccinated to attend school. And they uh, promoted uh, junk science 
um, to to prove their theory, they went and slapped slapped it through the Board of Health, and that would be the official um, government um, request and mandate. I believe they're still trying to make that um, a vaccine that is uh, included in all vaccines for children to attend public school. And I am opposed to that, and there is real science behind that, but that's an example of how the state power then could say, I'm using misinformation and I could be um, charged in this under this bill in this sense. Very clear example of recent times. Absolutely. And, and, and yes, the, uh, the State Board of Health has not made uh, the COVID shots a requirement for K-12 attendance enrollment yet. Uh, they're still sort of wheedling around that issue, but that has not happened yet here. So that's a, that's a good thing. Um, this HB 1333 that would have created this commission, we did kill it for this legislative session for this year, and that was a major achievement. That's one of our best scalps so far uh, this year in Olympia. Uh, a bill can always come back later. I think we were able to shine a bright enough light on this one that it is unlikely it will come back, at least in its current form. Yeah. Because uh, I think we were able to impress on even some of the partisan legislators that this is uh, a bad but deal. But just the fact that something like that would be proposed and and taking a flyer on um, is troubling. Now let's get to these bills um, that did pass through um, that are troubling in, a, in its own right, that are associated in terms of um, not... They go against common sense. They go against Constitution. It just keeps getting forced down. In Washington State, there's a, there's a majority. They, the Democratic Party owns the House. They own the Senate. They own the Attorney General. They, they have the position of the governor. Um, how do you, um, please talk about these bills and what it's like to be in this minority status, um, constantly under fire of things that that what I would say, if our general public, if they were able to pay attention and understand these bills that are put forth, the overwhelming majority of our general public, our neighbors, even ones that would consider themselves Democrat, would be against this. How, how do we fight the, not just the, against um, this majority body, but this... Um, sense that our neighbors are too busy, people are too busy to, to get into the weeds, get into the wonkiness of understanding these bills. Help, help understand, <laughs> please, uh, paint this picture. What, what is it like to be in your position? Well, it, uh, it, it, is, uh, it is a job of communication. It is a job of being a herald to what is happening. Um, uh, there are kind of two categories of these interlocking bills that I could we can talk about it, and I'll try to do it quickly, but but thoroughly. Um, one has to do with gun rights, and there are three interlocking bills there. The other has to do with parental rights, and there are, gosh, probably four, but really two interlocking bills there. And, and let me start with the parental rights, because uh, people are more familiar with gun rights issues, but I don't think everyone's up to speed as they should be on the attacks going on currently yes. uh, against parental rights. Um, so what are parental rights? Parental rights are, to a large degree, 
the definition of what a nuclear family is. And, and, and in the body of law, both at the federal level and the state level, there are constitutional protections to parental rights. Now, they are not clearly stated in either the federal or state constitutions. Uh, they are implied, as many things are. Now, in the federal constitution, as your listeners probably know, there's no explicit right to privacy. It is an implied right in the federal constitution. One of the great reasons to live in Washington state is our state constitution has an explicit right to privacy. But, and many of the rights that we take for granted are these implied rights in our constitutions. Well, parental rights are like that. They are implied in language about privacy, in language about property rights, in language about uh, freedom of uh, expression and freedom of religion. It is implied in this that in a nuclear family, uh, parents have legal and constitutional rights to guide the upbringing of their children. Yeah, that's the the term minor child. Right. A minor child has a parent that is the guardian and makes decisions. And and this is perhaps a problem in our foundational documents is this was assumed. Yeah. That would, it's something so essential to American people and Washingtonians that it wouldn't have to be explicitly explained. We may need to change that going forward. But, but it was assumed, and many of the peripheral documents around our founding documents, uh, things like the Federalist Papers and other, other uh, resources, uh, the authors talk about how you have to make certain assumptions to have a constitutional republic. And some of them felt that a Christian faith was one of those things. Others, Thomas Jefferson famously, had more of a general, non-denominal theist's view. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but they believed you had to have some sort of religious or, or spiritual framework of belief. And they believed you had to have a, a notion of a nuclear family. And it, this was sacrosanct to them. Um, so, so these rights, the right of a parent to guide the upbringing of their children is implied throughout our foundational documents. Um, in, in, in case law, in the, in the traditions of our courts, both in this country and in our state, it's the same. Courts have consistently for, for 240 years put a body of court law, of, of, of decisions together that say that parents have the rights to control the upbringing of their minor children. And then when the child reaches adulthood, which we generally call the age of 18, although some people are trying to blur that, yes. then the child uh, is no longer a child, uh, no longer uh, subject to the upbringing of the parents, and is an independent adult who can make his or her own choices. Um, it, what we have right now in our culture is a, a, a strategic effort to undermine the parental rights to guide the upbringing of minor children and to pull that away from parents or, or grandparents or guardians. I mean, sure. it doesn't have to be a biological parent, a traditional authority figure in a child's life. Pull the control of the upbringing of the child away from those individuals and put it into the hands of the state. Yeah. And by state, I mean the government, uh, you know, uh, federal agencies, state agencies. And what we have right now in Olympia, bills that are still in process this session, are uh, two that are of concern. Uh, House Bill 1469, 
and Senate Bill 5599. And they are not companions. They don't address exactly the same issues, but they are synergistic with each other. They do have some interplay with each other. House Bill 1469 is, uh, the marketing hook is it's called the Shield Law. And this says that Washington State will not recognize court orders or court actions from other states that affect a person coming into Washington to seek certain medical treatments. And those certain medical treatments are primarily abortions and uh, sex change surgeries. Gender affirming is the the buzzword of the day, surgeries and, and, and medical care. So what it says, 1469, is if a person comes from another state to Washington and either receives uh, an abortion or receives sex change surgery uh, treatment, that any action of the state from which that person came, Washington will not recognize. Now, this applies to adults, but it also applies to minor children. I was, I was going to ask you to define person there. Right. So, so what what is it, the age parameter? There is none. It can be any age. And it affects particularly... Uh, the age at which such treatments can be given to children according to Washington law. Yeah. So it's a, it's kind of a blur of what other states have as their laws, what Washington has as its laws. So for, for example, just really quick, um, in Iowa, they're developing legislation to uh, ban um, gender surgeries and such uh, um, care uh, until you're 18 years of age. Correct. So a uh, uh, 14-year-old uh, uh, has a 16-year-old friend. They run away from Iowa. They come to Washington State, um, and you're saying this law would create a shield so that— um, Iowa wouldn't uh, help help me understand. Well, their parents couldn't come their, get them. Their parents couldn't come get them. What it, what it would say is that Washington would not recognize any court action from Iowa that restricts that individual person's right to receive either an abortion or gender change, you know, sex change operations care here in Washington. So it would shield the individual, even if the individual is a minor child, from any kind of court action from Iowa, that from the, whatever the, the other the, state that is. That the parent would bring. That the parent would initiate to try to get their kid back. And and uh, that is couched and framed as a protection of the minor child. But really what it is, is it's an assault on the family in Iowa. Uh, but the rhetoric of it is that this is protecting people. And there are constitutional issues. When we debated this bill, uh, I'm the ranking member in Olympia on the House Judiciary Committee, which handles most constitutionally focused bills. Mm-hmm. And this 1469 came through the, the Judici- Judiciary Committee. And during our hearings and, and our debate on the bill, I brought up the full faith and credit clause of the U.S. Constitution, which says that each state has to recognize the actions, the laws of every other state. Yeah. And if we in Washington break away from that and say we will not recognize the actions of, say, a, a court in Iowa, um, we run the risk of Iowa responding by saying, well, Iowa is not going to recognize Washington's court actions. And, you know, Iowa may arrest... Uh, the governor of Washington 
when he comes to Des Moines, if he because he's been ignoring Iowa's court actions, uh, so it, it can create this whole thing, which historians and, and amateur historians will recognize from the Articles of Confederation, which was our first attempt at a constitution in the United States, resulted in a lot of these kinds of interstate sure. bickering and fighting. And one of the reasons we set up our con- present constitution was to do away with those states going at each other. Well, this HB 1469 here in Washington has the potential to reignite those kinds of interstate disputes. So that's one of the bills. The other bill, which I mentioned, Senate Bill 5599, more explicitly puts a wedge between parents or guardians and minor children. It is not directed at all at other states. It's only directed at Washington law. But in, and it says very clearly that a minor child who seeks, again, either an abortion or sex change surgery or medical treatment, uh, who runs away from home, uh, can be put up in a shelter, a state-recognized youth homeless shelter, or a relatively new thing called a host home, which is not as well-defined in law, but basically someone who will take them in, uh, that child can be hidden from the parents. The state will not notify the parents where the child is, and not only will not notify the parents, it will actively take measures to hide where the child is from the parents. And and this is where uh, there's been some language that uh, I don't quite understand the controversy, but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention um, this this sounds like a groomer. Uh, Somebody that's grooming that child could then host them and have the power of the state assist them. Um, Okay, is there an age associated here? Uh, What what age? Again, it's triggered a lot by when... A, a young child, a minor child, can receive certain kinds of medical treatment in Washington. Washington law has a patchwork system of what they call mature minor doctrine, ages at which minor children can receive different types of medical care without the permission or consent of their parents. Wow. And th- those ages are different per each kind of care. Yeah, for example, um, uh, what are the laws around getting a tattoo? Oh, you have to be 18 to get a tattoo without your parents' uh, permission. Without whose permission? Parents. Oh, right? parents. <laughs> and I believe in the law, the, the child still has to be at least 16 with parental consent. Correct. For, to a, get, for a tattoo. To get a tattoo, some sort of permanent marking on someone's body. But what we're discussing here is permanent um, changes. I won't use the term mutilation, but ter- permanent changes yes, within physical, s- physical changes, physical right. changes to a body that can be done without parental consent as low as we still haven't defined it. I've heard yeah. the term 13 years of age. 13 is one of them. It's a little controversial. It's either 13 or 14, depending on which section of the law you're looking at. Yeah. And remember that the, 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 the so-called gender affirming care is still a relatively new thing in the law. So most of the existing law, it doesn't mention gender affirming care or sex changes, it mentions things like psychiatric care. A child can receive psychiatric care when they're 13. Um, In the case of abortion, there's no age at which mature minor, no specific age at which mature minor doctrine attaches, but any young girl who can get pregnant can 
claim the mature minor status. So that obviously can be young as 11 or 12, depending on each individual child. That'd be extremely rare. 14, 15, 16. More likely. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's the, so there's no specific age trigger to a child seeking mature minor, whatever you want to call it, shield from parents on abortion. But on psychiatric care, it's 13 on, on certain other and, kinds and, and of what psych- we're what we're talking about. Sorry to interrupt. But sure. What we're talking about psych- psychiatric care. We're talking about counseling. We're talking about children being able to seek counseling um, uh, beyond their parents. Get something out. Receive counseling. We're not talking about. And this is mental. We're talking about a young child struggling that needs to talk about things that they may not feel comfortable talking about things with their parents. We're not talking about permanent body bodily um, changes. Um, it, what what we're really getting to the heart at that I want to try to switch gears and move it to, in, unless you think you really need to discuss the way the Senate bill um, conjoins, is this concept of the parent. Mm-hmm. Because they're basically taking, and this is what I've seen it throughout my life, is government bodies, bureaucrats, have taken outlier, small, very small percent of um, possible outcomes or situations, and they create broad laws that affect us all to protect that very small percent. So I would imagine they would say that this law is to, uh, not to take away your parental rights, Jim, it's to help this abused child and protect, um, protect the abused. And what I've tried to get across to uh, people, unfortunately, the only people I've seen that are up in arms about this bill are stable, good parents that I don't believe this bill would affect my family. It's scary. What we're really trying to do is protect those children that are vulnerable, that don't have a solid core parental unit. It's the very people they say they're trying to protect are the ones that they're creating law and uh, situations um, that that could allow them through a fad, through um, a period of depression, through a period of confusion, which you and I as parents of adult children, we know that happens. That's a it's a process of life is to go through these waves, especially during pure puberty. Sure. And they want to basically solidify these normal pangs of childhood. They want to solidify that for the rest of these children's lives instead of allow them to live through maybe a fad, maybe a per- just a particular time in life where they're confused. So it's this push and pull between the state. They're trying to make the state a parental figure. It's it, for what I would assume would be extremely small, very small um, percent of cases or situations where this would be necessary. Uh, yeah, uh, they are trying to normalize the abnormal. And in this case, that you're right, you're exactly right. They are trying to act as though violent, physically abusive parents are the norm. They aren't. Yeah. And we have good law in the books already. To, to respond in situations where a, po- a parent is yeah, we have violent a, and abusive. Whole, whole agency in the state. Absolutely we do. Department of uh, Children, Youth, and Family, DCYF. Uh, its own state agency. Uh, so we have good law for dealing with the, with the abnormal, with the abusive, with the violent, with the 
damaging. They are trying to, in, in these laws to put wedges between children and parents. They are assuming that those abnormal circumstances are the norm. And this is damaging to families, but it's damaging to more than just families. This approach to public policy is damaging to the republic. It's damaging to our notion of government. And, and when I have these conversations with my colleagues who support these bad bills, you can just see that there's, there's uh, just cognitive dissonance. They don't have any ability to grasp what this kind of policy will do. And, and we've seen it in other places, Jay. The, 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 the bad anti-cop laws that were born of the George Floyd uh, aftermath, uh, the, the proponents of those bad laws didn't think through yeah. that restricting police uh, pursuit was going to make more uh, violent crime in the state. And and they didn't. And we said to them, "Look at the, you know, let us reason together. Yes. Walk down the process of what we're doing here and see the likely outcomes." They don't operate at that level. They operate at a much more immediate level. And it, it's some of these making policy on a, a normalizing the abnormal. It's also very emotional. It's a, driven by emotionalism, not reason. Oh. A child was beaten by a parent. Well, we have to stop all parents. No. No. And and another por- important thing to bring up is too many legislators in Olympia, and I'm afraid this is the direction D.C. is taking, don't have life experience outside of politics and government. In many cases, they've never had children. They've never raised children. And they are people who've always lived in the public sector, either for work or political activism, which I guess is a kind of work, um, their, their whole life experience is inside the political bubble. They have very little business experience, very little work experience in the way that a, a regular person considers work, very little experience even engaging within the political bubble with people of other perspectives. They are hothouse flowers, and they don't have a lot of life experience. That's part of the reason we're getting these bad bills. Yeah, wow. Well, it's insightful as uh, part of the root cause and certainly a, a trouble when it comes to our bureaucracy and the people that are within the bureaucracy and why... Um, they're trying to create more of a function of the state than than should be. Uh, again, it's the state is for um, protecting us, uh, uh, protecting our God given rights, um, keeping the commerce flowing, um, different things like that. And they are trying to put the state into all kinds of areas that it doesn't need to be, or where there are already laws protecting individuals um, from violence, from abuse. All right, well, let me move on, because again, 
the people that are on top of the gun issues, they are on top of it. Second Amendment um, rights uh, that's being eroded. You can look into some of the bills that they're proposing um, where it's ridiculous. I've seen language where it's uh, semi-automatic. And even myself, who's not you know a really big uh, gun owner and, and gun rights enthusiast, I, I protect other people's rights and I encourage other people to have guns. Doesn't necessarily mean I'm into it. But even I understand, wait a minute, Semi-automatic, that's just about every gun. It's just about every kind of pistol or rifle, right? Uh, th- we can talk about the gun uh, bills very quickly. Three of them uh, of greatest concern, uh, House Bill 1143, House Bill 1240, and a Senate Bill 5078. Uh Again, the three of them kind of interconnect a little bit, like we talked about with the parental rights issues. Uh, the most significant is probably that House Bill 1240, the so-called assault weapon ban. We're getting here to what you're talking about. Um, uh, again, uh, drafted by the state attorney general here and shockingly badly written. Yeah. Uh, 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 technical terms in the bill that are wrong, that are simply not the way things are. Uh uh, descriptions of firearms that are silly and don't don't exist, um, and uh, and 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 just poorly drafted. And it's sort of surprising that this fellow who thinks he's such a genius puts out, or his staff does, puts out these poorly written yeah. proposals. Uh, the the thing to know about these anti-gun bills, we, we, we've always had this here in Washington State. Washington State is by tradition a fairly progressive state. But one of the distinctive things about Washington State is we are very strong on gun rights in the state, and always have been, yeah. it's to the founding uh, state constitution, our founding documents. So we are libertarian in that way, in that we, we tend to be socially uh, a little more progressive, but on certain issues, taxes and guns, we are very conservative, at least as these things are labeled in, in the framework in of times. history and what's in our DNA. So, Correct. So uh, these these new uh, set of three bills, they're not really new. We've been batting these issues around in Olympia for decades. Um, they are going to be reversed by the federal courts as soon as the first federal court sees them. The U.S. Supreme Court recently issued the Bruin decision, which dealt with a New York state law, roughly analogous to some of these Washington laws. And the Bruin decision stated very plainly from the U.S. Supreme Court, okay, states, you can't pass laws that violate the constitutional rights to keep and bear arms, uh, and if you do, we will strike them down and yeah. reverse them. And and the justices at, at the U.S. Supreme Court went even farther than the decision in Bruin. They gave instruction to the lower federal courts, look, guys, when you get these state courts that are violating constitutional rights, you got to turn them, overturn them, and if you... Uh, lower federal courts issued any decisions that gave cover to this, you've got to go back and revisit your decisions because you can't give cover to these bills. And uh, so, so, so what, what I'm hearing then is, is that, yes, these might be crammed down our throats at the state level through the legislature, uh, but they aren't likely to have any permanent effect. However, um, what's to prevent the state from shutting down gun stores in the meantime? And what is the waste of our government resources um, uh, trying to argue this in court? That's the, the key point, Jay, about these gun bills, is they are an absolute waste of taxpayer money. Because it, it, is, it is an exercise in futility. Everyone knows it is. And, and frankly, our governor is just looking for a photo op signing one of these scuds into law 
and he can virtue signal that he's doing his part. Uh, And then they will be overturned almost immediately. I I know that gun dealers who are affected by that Senate bill I mentioned and, and as well as gun owners groups have already drafted the paperwork, the lawsuits, and they will seek immediate injunctions the moment the okay. governor signs the bills. Now they may not, you know, it's tough to get a, a immediate injunction on these kinds of things, but federal courts in New Jersey and in California have issued injunctions again after this Bruin decision on state laws that are infringe on on gun rights. So immediate injunctions are always tough to get, but in this space on these gun rights issues there's a good chance they'll get an immediate injunction quashing the uh, the bill turned into law from taking effect. Okay, I'm very happy. We're, we're just coming upon one hour right now. I know you need to get back to the legislature. I'm so thrilled that we finally got a chance to sit down, have this conversation. Um, I've been... Um, paying attention to you for a long time. Uh, I was thinking about you. I was like, oh, does he know who I am? And it's like, well, we've shown up at enough events around the state in this particular region that we know who each other are. We're both working very hard for common sense in Washington and to try to get the word out in an intelligent, calm manner to our neighbors who might be captured by the marketing. And, And we know that we have very good neighbors um, that are simply captured by the marketing, and if they could, uh, if we could speak to them in a rational way and explain to them what's going on, um, it might help them understand better what is happening at the legislature and at the uh, level of the uh, governor's office. What what happens with you? Wh- where I see you now, um, people keep talking about uh, Jim's going to run for governor. Um, and I say, well, he's he's more of a legislator. Um, I could see him running for federal senator, uh, federal congress. But if I'm not mistaken, your area is down in Guzan Camp Perez, Joe Kent country. OK, so you would be uh, another conservative voice um, uh, running against Joe Kent in the primary, if that were the case. I don't know how long until a senator's position pops up. But again, that's a statewide race, which the Republican party he has had trouble with. Um, when you think about your future, uh, understanding the past, understanding where you are, I would I would be remiss also not to mention that I believe you should be um, the House minority leader, but in our state, in our party, um, there is somebody ahead of you in positional rank, if you will, um, and I and I don't quite understand the process of how that can be replaced. I would imagine that's a vote within your body. It is. Um, what do you see your future as? Gosh, uh, a lot there. Thank you for uh, linking me to all of those options. <laughs> uh, I, I, I like my job. I like what I'm doing now. Uh, you know, people ask me all the time about what's next. Will you run for governor? Will you run for Congress or Senate? Um we have a lot to fix in Olympia. And I think my focus for, for now is on Olympia. Um, we, uh, you know, we need to build a lot of, frankly, campaign political infrastructure in order to win statewide races in Washington state. We, we have, we're, we're good at being a vocal minority. We, we punch above our weight policy-wise 
but we're not in a place where we're accustomed to being in charge. And that takes both a cultural shift within our own operations here in Washington, as well as a nuts and bolts shift, building a campaign infrastructure that currently doesn't exist. Um, uh, many of us were disappointed in, in the recent U.S. Senate campaign of Tiffany Smiley, who was a phenomenal candidate. Tremendous uh, candidate. But ended up not doing, I mean, underperforming, frankly, what uh, I believe thought. she did worse than, in a statewide race, did worse than the, the sheriff who ran for governor. Uh, Culp. The Lauren previous, Culp. Uh, on a percentage basis, yes. The number, the absolute numbers were different. But on a percentage basis, shockingly, she underperformed Culp. Um, now, when you look at a candidate like Smiley, who is articulate, attractive, well-grounded in, in conservative politics and philosophy, and underperforming like that, it, you realize it's not about the candidate. In that kind of situation, it's about the system. It's about the the structure. There's not and enough it, structure. It certainly wasn't about money. I believe she raised uh, $26 million, which I think it was a record for a Washington state Senate race. That's correct. A, 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 for a challenger anyway, but, but, she, but she raised a lot of money. I, so all those elements were there. What was lacking was literally the, the precinct by precinct organization and, and structure and people yeah. who knew who to talk to to walk a certain precinct. Uh, so that we need to work on. Um, I'd like to be part of improving our structure, our campaign structure. Uh, and and this, is no, this is retail politics that everybody anywhere in the country has to face every few years. Uh, a, a well-built campaign structure doesn't last forever. Yeah. Even if you build it right, it, it's around for a few cycles, and then you usually have to tear it down and rebuild it, it again. It can only be supported by the people that are there that showing are there. up. Yeah. So we need to work on that. Um, uh, you know, as for the rest, I don't know. I mean, we need to run a strong gubernatorial campaign in 2024 in this state. And I I could be part of that, or I, I may just want to focus on the legislature and trying to, trying to improve what we do in the legislature. I think we are at an inflection point. I think enough of the quiet people who don't follow politics all the time, and that's that's fine. That's great. I mean, yep. this country was built in the idea you don't have to follow politics. We're supposed to have representatives right, doing... to do that yeah. for you. Mm -hmm. um, I think the people who don't follow politics all the time are, are getting that Washington State is moving away from what makes it great. It's moving away from the kind of live and let live attitude that has always defined Washington State and moving to this angrier, more in-your-face kind of micromanaging that fails even on its own terms. Yeah. I think people are getting that. So I want to be part of that inflection. I want to be part of moving Washington back to where it was a couple of decades ago when it was not only a beautiful place in the world to live, but also a well-run place. Yes. I mean, you know, we, we, we've been a good government state until recently. And, and just recently, we've kind of let the, the extremists uh, get controls of the vehicle, and, and they've taken it away from that well-run uh, focus. So we need to get it back to being well-run, and I'd like to be part of that. Okay. Okay. One thing I'd like to um, challenge you and encourage you on, something I'm working on as a leader, 
um, in Republican politics in our state is pushing back on the anger. Um, you've seen it. We, we've got a lot of people that their view of participation is to bring anger um, to the forefront, and that is being weaponized and thrown back uh, to solidify the mucous membrane of the bubble that are good neighbors who are trapped trapped by the marketing. That anger then is being weaponized and solidifying that bubble. Um, please, uh, you are an extremely intelligent man. You come across people all across the state. We somehow need to find a way to push back and calm the anger from within our own party um, because they are the minority also. You know, the, most people see the problems, understand the solutions for the problems, and aren't just throwing rocks at everyone around them as their um, idea of resistance. That's important to do. And, and, we have to be doubly careful. Um, we have to be uh, aware that lazy mainstream media tropes will portray us as angry. And I've been portrayed as angry and, and things uh, that I'm not. You have to be careful of that. It's the easy way to portray common sense conservatives or constitutional people. It's easy to portray them as angry, and, and that's what the media wants to do. That's right. And don't, uh, like Sun Tzu said, don't, don't take on your opponent where your opponent is strong. Take on your opponent where your opponent is weak. In that spirit, don't play to their biases and their preconceptions. Confuse them. Don't give them the soundbite they want. Give them a different soundbite. Yeah. All right, Jim. Thank you. Back to the people's work. Thank you for sitting down with me. I really do appreciate it. It's been fun. Uh, let's do it again sometime. All right. We love you, Jay. The dude is all right. It's all about community. Come join us. You can find me on Twitter at Jay Frat. And all episodes of the Conservative Hippie podcast and show notes are published at theconservativehippie.com. And of course, as always, if you want to support this podcast and support your smoking lifestyle, go to smokinjays.com and use coupon code HIPPIE, H-I-P-P-I-E, for 15% off at checkout. Down to the